Welcome to the podcast of the week by the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe 1100 to 1800. Enjoy hearing how emotions make history. Shino Kanishi is a lecturer in History and Indigenous Studies at the University of Western Australia and a Chief Investigator with the ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions. She's Aboriginal and identifies with the Yawuru people of Broome. This paper, Emotional Exchanges, Gift-Giving and Cross-Cultural Encounters, was delivered at a conference on the future of emotions, Conversations Without Borders, at the University of Western Australia in June 2018. Gift-giving is acknowledged as a universal human behaviour, which serves to facilitate social cohesion through obliging the receiver to return a gift in exchange and forging reciprocal social bonds between giver and receiver. Many historians have noted that gift-giving played a particularly crucial role in cross-cultural encounters. At the very least, it opened a channel of communication in the absence of a common language, signalled peaceful intentions and diplomatic goodwill, and hopefully presaged the exchange of commodities and ongoing trade relations. For this reason, many European explorers ventured out into new lands laden with various tokens which could serve as gifts, baubles, ribbons, mirrors, hatchets, medals, and so on. Such gifts were referred to as trinkets, trifles, or triflings, and considered to be goods of little value. Historian Patrick Green notes that European explorers were not just weighed down by their cargo of trinkets, but also their assumptions about the nature of Indigenous peoples. Europeans perceived the ostensible willingness of Indigenous people to be hoodwinked into trading practical commodities, um, such as food, spices, trade items, um, with worthless items as an artefact of their childlike nature. This view is typified in the first encounter between Aboriginal people and British colonists here in Australia, when Governor Arthur Phillip first landed in Botany Bay in January 1788. Upon sailing into the bay, Phillip saw some friendly-looking Aboriginal men on the shore and after landing, approached the men alone, setting aside his weapons and holding out some boards and making signs of peace. The men then disarmed, and while maintaining a slight distance, walked towards Philip, who gave them a looking glass, some beads and other toys. Philip noticed that the men appeared to delight in ornamentation and immediately put the beads in their hair or around their necks. Surgeon George Wargan exclaimed that the men, quote, receive these gifts with much the same kind of pleasure which children show at such baubles. Just looking at them, then holding out their hands for more, some laughed heartily and jumped extravagantly. He added, emotions of pleasure, astonishment, curiosity and timidity appeared in these poor creatures and concluded that, this was, thus was our first intercourse obtained with these children of nature, So historians and anthropologists such as Nicholas Thomas have observed that such patronising accounts pose the natives as both powerless and foolhardy by presenting the magic of European products as a source of asymmetry between powerless natives and dominant European colonisers. In contrast, Thomas argues that objects are not what they were made to be, but what they have become. Historians such as Green, Patrick Green, Mary Sheriff, Jessica Spivy have read European accounts against the grain to consider how these European trinkets or other improvised trade objects, such as the common nail, which um, explorers to the Pacific ripped out of their ships to trade with, um, 
um, Pacific women, <clears throat> as well as fish hooks, took on new meanings and significances for Indigenous people, and argue that their seemingly eager reception was not just a sign was not a sign of Indigenous gullibility. Sheriff, in her study of Bougainville in Tasmania, observed that objects did not change materially when they moved from Europe to the Pacific, but were put to new uses and acquired new meanings. These studies of gift giving in the contact zone have revealed key insights into European ideas about the other, but have largely overlooked the unsolicited gifts that Indigenous people in turn gave to Europeans who travelled in their lands. Moreover, studies of Aboriginal objects that ended up in European hands tended to focus on European collecting practices, whether through asymmetrical exchanges or coercive and even violent acquisition um, of material culture. So in this paper, I want to instead explore the voluntary Aboriginal gift giving that features in explorer accounts in order to highlight the different rationales and motives that Indigenous people had for offering gifts to these strangers in their land. Further, by adapting Mary Sheriff's argument, I want to explore the process of how, quote, this is her quote, objects move from hand to hand, and in doing so, move people powerfully, activating a range of emotions and motivating all natures of exchanges. So in this paper, I'm um, going to trace four different types of Aboriginal gift-giving um, described in 19th century overland explorer accounts. Um, using emotions as a guide to interpret the motives and intents that underscore these exchanges. The first example um, is a gift that the New South Wales surveyor John Oxley received during his 1817 expedition um, to follow the course of the Macquarie River. In mid-August, towards the end of, the, of his expedition, he had arrived in Wiradjuri country, having crossed the Wellington Valley about 70 miles northwest of Bathurst. Here the expedition halted in a pretty valley, um, and as they set up camp, they heard the noise of this, this is a quote, the noise of a stone hatchet made by a native in climbing a tree. Oxley and his men then stole silently upon him, making their way all the way under his tree, before he noticed, and surprised him just as he was about to descend. Despite their attempts to, quote, use every friendly motion in their power to induce him to descend, the man was clearly terrified and kept calling loudly to his friend for help. At the same time, he threw down to Oxley and his men the game he had procured, a ring-tailed opossum, making signs for them to take it up. Soon after, his friend returned, and so the man climbed down from the tree. The second man held in his hands three or four possums, as well as a snake, and which he also laid down upon the ground and offered to Oxley. The two men, who seemed to Oxley no more than 20 years of age, appeared to be terrified by Oxley's sudden presence, for they, quote, trembled excessively, and if the expression may be used, they were absolutely intoxicated with fear, displaying a thousand antic motions, convulsive laughing, and singular motions of the head, end quote. So despite the men's seeming state of terror, the first man's encouragement for Oxley to take the opossum and the second man's offer renders these gifts as gifts of appeasement. Clearly these offerings serve as an anxious overture to try and elicit a peaceful accord with Oxley and his men, or at least to try and ensure against them committing any violence against them. 
While the game was perhaps the only objects they had immediately at hand, they were nonetheless valuable as they represented a substantial degree of labour. Um, you know, because they had to cut notches into these very tall trees to climb up to catch the possums. Oxley presumed that their emotional outbursts of fear and later surprise at everything they saw of the Europeans' belongings, quote, clearly showed that we were the first white men they had met with, like many other explorers. He assumed that his own white skin had inordinately shot Aboriginal eyes. Yet he realised that they had either heard or seen of tomahawks, for when he reciprocated their gifts of the possums with a, um, a small axe, the receiver clasped it to his breast and demonstrated the greatest pleasure. However, if knowledge of the European seemingly superior and desirable material culture could precede their arrival on the frontier, unexplored lands, then perhaps word of their colonial belligerence could also travel ahead of them and provide new insights on the men's palpable fear. Only the previous year, in April 1816, Governor Macquarie had ordered a military reprisal led by Captain James Wallace against the neighbouring Gundungara people. This resulted in the Appen Massacre, in which 14 men, women and children had been shot and driven over the edge of a 60 metre um, gorge, 60 metre deep gorge. The bodies of two of the victims, well-known warriors, Joel and Cannabiagal, were then, quote, hauled up to the highest point of the range of hills on Lockham Vale and strung up in trees as a warning to other Aboriginal people not to resist the British colonists. This massacre was said to have ended the Cumberland Plains War, which had intermittently raged since the early 1790s um, as settlers moved into this area and preceded the Bathurst Wars with the Wiradjuri that would begin around 1823. So even though the site of the Appen Massacre was hundreds of kilometres away from where Oxley met these two men, it happened to the Wiradjuri's neighbours, Gundagara. So it is feasible that word of this massacre, just like word of the um, axes, had also preceded um, the European explorers. So that's why while Oxley focused on the two men's excessively emotional and seemingly irrational reaction to his white skin, a focus on their gift to Oxley of possums suggests that it was an improvised gift of appeasement and perhaps a prudent safeguard against Oxley's potential violence towards him. The second type of gift giving I'll discuss relates to hospitality. Jessica Stern argues that gifts of hospitality, primarily food and clothing, were one of the earliest forms of gifts and were intended to create enduring bonds between two parties by marking them internally and externally similar. However, Jessica Spivy, in her analysis of British and Native American exchanges in southeastern US, argues that hospitality gifts marked one party as the outsider and the other party as the insider in contests over space. Both interpretations see hospitality as inaugurating ongoing relationships um, which need to be managed through either assimilation and incorporation or through assertions of sovereignty. Yet explorers of Aboriginal hospitality suggested it also represented a temporary responsibility <coughs> for the physical well-being of visitors to one's country before they could then be shepherded out again. My first example was recorded by the Polish explorer Paul Edmund de Streslecki, 
who embarked on a geological expedition exploring the Australian Alps in 1839-40. He was accompanied by two Aboriginal intermediaries, Charlie, Tara and Jackie, although he didn't refer to them specifically by name, only describing them as his, as his guide or native. And their role was to inform him about Indigenous cultural protocols and communicate with Aboriginal people um, that he met on Strzelecki's behalf. It was obviously through them that Strzelecki learned that there were many quote, Aboriginal superstitious practices connected with the rites of hospitality. He provided a vivid account of one such traditionary practice, recalling an encounter with a small group of Nauru men in the Snowy Mountains, after a few days struggling with almost no water. As they crested an unnamed mountain, Strzelecki and his guides, quote, beheld at their feet in the shades of a thicket the long-looked-for pond of water, surrounded by dwellings of the encamped tribe. Desperate to quench his thirst, Strzelecki rushed towards the pond, but when his guide suddenly seized him, warning him to stop or we are lost. Instead of directly approaching the dwellings, Strzelecki and his guide sat down about 60 yards from the camp. After a short while, at which point Strzelecki's impatience for food and water was, quote, about to burst, a piece of burning wood was thrown towards them from the nearest wigwam. This is his quote. His guide nonchalantly retrieved the torch and lit a fire, and then he began to cook a possum that he had with him, seemingly ignoring the local Aboriginal people all the while, and only casting an occasional sideways glance at them. Another 10 minutes later, an elderly woman brought some water, leaving it midway between the two groups, and then a while later, she brought fish. Strzelecki was struck by the strangely impassive demeanour of both the host and his guide. The host betrayed no fear at Strzelecki's sudden appearance, and his guide was also impassive and ably masked his thirst while Strzelecki battled um, to contain his own desire for water. Strzelecki was surprised to find that it was only after his group's hunger and thirst had been satisfied by these gifts then an old man finally, an old man in the camp finally rose and advanced towards the expedition. Strzelecki's guide met him halfway, and the two men discussed the object of their wanderings through Nauru country. After their parley, the old man returned to his group to report back, and after a few minutes' silence, the explorers were ordered to return from whence they came. Strzelecki was shocked that they had not been received. They had not received an invitation to join the camp and was informed by his guide that there was no appeal against this decision and they had no option but to leave. So reflecting on this interaction later, Strzelecki declared, simple child of nature, faithful to her inspirations, the native of Australia proceeds in the discharge of hospitality by a way exactly the reverse of our own. He first satisfied the wants of the traveller and then afterwards asked him those questions which to, uh, in our civilization, precede and regulate the kind and quantity of the hospitality to be accorded, and sometimes prompt its refusal altogether. So Strzelecki found this sort of reverse hospitality uh, very curious, but at least he recognized that Aboriginal hospitality existed and had his thirst and hunger sated. Botanist William Caron, who wrote the journal for 
um, of Edmund Kennedy's tragic expedition from Rockingham Bay to Cape York in Queensland in 1848, on the other hand, failed to recognise Aboriginal hospitality during his six-week stay at Weymouth Bay, which was in Papagee country. Oh, eight of the men camped at Weymouth Bay, waiting for Kennedy, um, who had gone to seek help. Virtually from the outset of the, ex the expedition had been plagued by food and water shortages, and by November, their slow pace caused them to miss their rendezvous um, with the schooner Ariel. On November 13th, the desperate Kennedy and his expedition's Aboriginal guide, Jackie, set off north to try and meet the HMS Bramble and get help for the remaining eight men. Leaving those eight to establish a new depot on a hill where they could look out for ships, but also maintain some security from the natives. The next day, a group of Aboriginal people briefly came to observe the men camped at Weymouth Bay, um, observe them from afar, and then two days later they returned. But Karen wouldn't let them approach the depot. He made them stand at a distance, and then he walked over to them. And they had brought us, he says, they brought us a, a few small pieces of fish, but he dismisses as old and hardly edible, and begrudgingly repaid them with some fish hooks. That day, the labourer John Douglas died, and, quote, his death, the sad precursor to so many more, cast an additional gloom over us. And then they made sure to bury him out of sight of the Aboriginal people, so as not to reveal their own vulnerable state. Two days later, more Aboriginal people came, this time bringing their wives, as well as fish, which they called mingi, and a paste made of different kinds of leaves and roots that had been cooked, and which they called dakia. But again, Karen complained about the taste and the quality of the food. Over the next month, the local Aboriginal people continually brought fish, turtles, shark meat, lizards, every few days, but they were continually rebuffed um, by the now very paranoid explorers who believed, quote, their designs upon us were all too transparent. And they kept brandishing their guns at the Aboriginal people, keeping them at bay, even though they were rapidly starving to death. And over the course of that six-week stay, six men had died. Um, of the, or six of the eight men had died. Karen wrote... Quote, although they tried to make us believe they were doing all in their power to benefit us, their object was to obtain an opportunity of coming upon us by surprise and destroying us. Finally, on the 30th of December, um, two Aboriginal men approached Karen, who at this point was all by himself. And even though he fired his gun to try and scare them away, they still came forward and gave him a torn and dirty letter. And this was a letter from the Ariel telling them that help was on the way. That very same day, Dobson arrived, along with Jackie, who, um, after Kennedy had been killed, Jackie made his way to the boat, gave word of help, and they came to rescue um, the survivors. Despite Karen's very paranoid suspicion, the local Aboriginal people had evidently tried to offer their hospitality to the explorers through a series of gifts. Despite attempts to mask their vulnerability, the explorers' desperate state would have been patently obvious. Apart from the inordinate number of deaths, Karen admitted that he had been reduced to a skeleton with protruding bones and grotesquely swollen legs, 
and by the end he could no longer walk. Arguably the Aboriginal people's insistent and persistent hospitality was driven by a cultural obligation to care for the strangers in their land. As Yandrawanda man Aaron Patterson has argued in the Aboriginal story of Burke and Wills, which had a very similar story of the paranoid explorers refusing to engage with Aboriginal people despite their desperate um, state. Noongar scholar Len Collard has similarly described the obligation to provide hospitality, noting that many Noongar stories describe Europeans as the returned spirits of deceased relatives who needed to be taken care of because they had forgotten their katajin or knowledge and were virtually deaf, blind, deaf and without knowledge. So we can see this hospitable gift-giving as motivated by compassion and feelings of responsibility for strangers in their country. The third type of gift-giving I'll discuss represents gratitude. And this is taken from David Winford Carnegie's exploration of the West Australian desert in 1896. So Carnegie is best known for his very mercenary strategy of finding water by kidnapping or capturing, running down with horses, kidnapping Aboriginal people, chaining them, some forcibly feeding salt in order to make them lead the explorers to water. And reading his account, there are numerous instances of this kind of kidnapping. Yet, this wasn't a necessary strategy, as one example reveals. When he was about 100 miles south of Halls Creek, they came across the biggest camp of natives they'd seen, comprising a dozen little, quote, whirlies or grand shelters. At the time, there was only, the only occupants was an oldish man who Carnegie facetiously referred to as the old Jew and several women and numerous children. Carnegie noticed that one young girl had terrible sores, so he dressed them with tar and oil, and a boy also had sore eyes, literally, quote, literally eaten away at the inner corners into deep holes. He doctored the boy, applying lotion, and the old man nodded his head in approval. Straight after tending to the boy, the men took him to their well and gave Carnegie water. And then they helped them you know, dig the water, because um, you have to dig down and then um, haul it out. And then the next day they took them to a large pond where they could get water as well. Yet evidently, they felt further need to show their appreciation for Carnegie's um, assistance. Four or five months later, when Carnegie was on his return journey back towards Perth, he met the old man again. And at this point, um, when they arrived at Sturt Creek, and quote, they soon recognised us and appeared tremendously pleased. The old Jew, is his quote, patted me and grinned and squirmed in the most ludicrous way. I discovered that he was thanking me for having cured his son's eyes. So the lotion um, had done his work, its work well. They then presented Carnegie with a highly treasured flat stick, carved all over into rough patterns, which was carefully wrapped and given as a mark of respect or gratitude for curing the boy's eyes. They also gave him throwing sticks, balls of hair string, a shield and a tomahawk. So these valuable gifts evidently represent the man's intense feelings of gratitude. Afki Compter acknowledges that gratitude is widely considered as the warm and nice feelings directed towards someone who's been benevolent, but she says it's actually an imperative force compelling us to return a benefit that we've received. 
So reciprocity and mutual obligation are particularly important in many Aboriginal cultures. And John Altman argues that at times people go to great lengths and much personal cost and effort to make unsolicited pre-stations or payments. And Anthony Redmond has observed that such reciprocated payments can be very delayed, um, as was the case with the old man's second gift to Carnegie after the water. So according to uh, linguists um, in Arnhem Land, or, or the linguists studying the Binning Gunwok um, language of Arnhem Land, they have a word to describe this imperative to give gifts, um, which translates to, we are feeling your compassion for each other. I'll skip over my last example, um, which was about gifts to um, evoke a political alliance. So in conclusion, this paper has traced three, oh, four, three or four types of Aboriginal gift giving that are evident in the accounts of overland exploration in Australia. Gifts of appeasement, gifts of hospitality, gifts of gratitude, and um, strategic political gifts, which I'm here to talk about. This focus on the Aboriginal gifts as opposed to the European gifts provides new insights into cross-cultural encounters, highlighting both Aboriginal cultural imperatives and individual motives behind indig Indigenous peoples' unsolicited interactions with European explorers in the contact zone. Crucially, these motivations can only be inferred through interpreting the expression of emotions, as described in the accounts. These acts of gift-giving are only rendered meaningful by interpreting the Aboriginal people's displays of fear, anxiety, impassiveness, compassion, gratitude, jealousy and anger. Further, these emotional encounters are not just one-sided, but are understood through the explorer's own acknowledged and at times unrecognised feelings of delight, desire, fear, paranoia and disdain. If you enjoyed this podcast by the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions, please go to our website www.historyofemotions.org.au